So welcome to the show. I'm David Speed. I'm Adam Brazier. And this is Creative Rebels. Uh, it's a podcast for creative entrepreneurs. We started our first company, Graffiti Life, in a small garage. Yeah, it wasn't easy. But we built the company up to the stage where now we're regularly working with brands like Disney and Nike. And we've been lucky enough to make art all over the world. On this podcast, we interview successful creators. Their advice will enable you to take action and turn your passion into a career. There's literally been no better time in history to make a career from being creative. So many people are going to tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to tell you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast. Welcome back, Rebels. Oh, hello. You caught me off guard there. I was daydreaming. Looking out the window, I saw yeah. that. <laughs> hello. And we had a really good question in this week um, from someone who's starting a business. Well, they've started a business, in fact. They've been running for a year now. Just wondering when to monetize and like, should they do that now? Like- yeah, it's an interesting question. And it's come up a few times because I think a lot of people have, that follow us have got like quite a lot of you guys have got quite big audiences. Mm-hmm. So we're talking like a thousand followers up to like, there's a lot of people who've got a lot more than that. But yeah. there's a lot of people who are around that like 1,000 to 5,000 followers mark who are, they can see that they've got quite good numbers now, but like, when's the point where that can actually turn into bringing some cash in for you? Yeah, because people talk about a thousand true fans and that's all you need to make a successful living. But I think a thousand true fans isn't a thousand followers. There's a big difference there. And I think people have heard that and they think, okay, well, I've got a thousand, I've got 2000 followers now. So I've got twice the amount I need to have these true fans. Those 2000 people aren't your true fans. Yeah, a, a small percentage of them will be. Yeah. Um, and like, it's like with the Creative Rebels feed, like we we see you, we know which ones of you are our, our true fans. And yeah. then there's a lot of people who are just listening and that's fine. Now. Like I don't, they don't have to be diehard. Like I love Creative Rebels, it's the best podcast in the world. Yeah, it's absolutely. like, because I think you, you do win those people over eventually if you are giving enough value to your audience. But yeah. we just kind of understand that that's, a, that's th- something that takes time. Um, and you get, you always, with everything, you get your early adopters. I mean, you always talk about this. You get your early adopters and then and then it spreads and it grows and people share the message and, and it's just a gradual process. Yeah, definitely. I think in terms of like monetizing as well, like I say it all the time, I think I've said on this podcast before, it's like, you know when to monetize when people start, trying to give you money if you're an artist and you're producing work and you're putting online regularly and then you start to get people message you and saying do you do commissions that's when you know there's actually money in this like you can't force it it's like you can't change a market like the market's the market like you can only sell to people who want something the hardest way to sell is to go up to someone cold who doesn't want it and try and force them into it. Like, yeah. just let people come to you. So, yeah, so the theory of a thousand true fans is by Kevin Kelly. I've listened to podcasts with him on before and he's really interesting. So I think you guys should delve into that theory. I think it's really interesting. Like monetizing can happen like probably much sooner than you than you expect and realize yeah. if, if you do look for it in the right places. So I think that if you have got an audience, there's, there, I guess there's two ways to go. You can go, you can monetize your audience, which is what the thousand true fans talks about. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's kind of if you've got a thousand people and every month you you bring out a print or a t-shirt or yeah. just something that they can interact with and get involved with. Yeah, like if you've got a thousand true fans and you sell a product for twenty-five pounds, you can sell two a year to all of those true fans. That's fifty grand you just made. Like that's a really great thing. Or if you can break that down monthly and do something that's like five pounds a month over a year, that's probably like sixty grand. 
Absolutely, yeah. So I actually follow someone on Instagram who's a, a really, really good example of this. So he's Spanish, so I'm not going to be able to pronounce this, but his um, handle is Ehimo. So it's E-H-I-M-O underscore adventures, um, if you guys want to check him out. Basically, he builds toys. Um, he does kind of remixes of toys from the 80s. And he'll sell, uh, he'll do pre-orders for a run. And pre-ordering is great because then you get the cash before you've actually built the product, which yeah. is incredible. He'll do a pre-order of like, 200 toys they'll all sell out he's then got the money to go and buy the materials the money to buy the paint and everything he'll then spend that month creating those 200 toys he'll then ship them out and then next month he'll do a new run a whole new run of toys and i think each toy is worth i think he charges about 100 quid per toy and mm-hmm. um, because they're, they're all handmade yeah. and they're, they're an artisan product they're really beautiful so 100 pounds is actually pretty cheap so it's yeah. a good price i mean yeah 200 times 100 pounds a month like you do the math it's like it's it's a great business and he's got thirteen thousand followers so not not a huge number but all of them are like enough of those followers are buying his products because he has those true fans yeah and how'd you get a thousand true fans put out rad shit for a really niche bunch of people yeah don't try and appeal to everyone don't make toys for the mass market like i'm sure this guy's toys are for toy collectors, like for people yeah, who are 100%. into that scene. Yeah, so, nerds who have a spare £100 a month to spend on a, yeah. on a figure, yeah. So really think about who your audience is and who you're targeting. And no disrespect if that is you, because I am one of those nerds. Yeah. I, I say that with great affection. <laughs> he definitely is. Um, so yeah, so that's the first way to is to monetize your actual followers. The other route, which is the route that, that we go down. Yeah, yeah, the other route is brand partnerships, where you don't charge your audience anything and you just grow a community and then charge people to basically promote things with you yeah which is my that's my preferred thing where i i guess through our other businesses well not so much the tattoo studio but but with um graffiti life and all over we've we've always worked with brands that's been our our thing that we've done for the past nine years so we know how that world works I mean, then then something, um, when we spoke to Alice Living recently, she said something about um, knowing your worth, mm-hmm. which is super important. And I think that when people do get approached by a brand who wants to work with them because they have a following, you could have 2,000 followers and brands. some brands will reach out because yeah. they, they there's micro-influencers of who have small audiences and brands do want to work with them. But then they have to work out how much to charge. And that's really difficult because there are some influencers out there who are charging way too much mm-hmm. and there are a lot of people who are charging not enough. So it's you've got to find that balance of what you're worth. Yeah, and I think most people don't charge enough. Yes. I think that's a massive problem. And from people I've talked to who actually have agents and are part of agencies, as soon as they work with them, they make so much more money because the agents know what their value is. Whereas to themselves, like some people just kind of think like, how can I charge that? Like, is my own time worth that? But like it is, your time is worth that. Yeah, um, it's something we talk about in this in this week's episode actually, and and it's valuing your time as a as a creative. It's not yeah. just about the materials that you bought; it's about the time that you put into it. Mm-hmm. And if you were working in a in a cafe, you'd be paid for your time. And just because you enjoy the craft doesn't mean that you shouldn't get paid for it. So, and that craft can be creating content like that is a craft. And so, and so I guess in the beginning, we always talk about it, but sometimes that does involve working for free. Mm-hmm. As long as you're not being taken advantage of, if there's a brand that wants to work with you, that you feel is going to be respectful of your content, they're going to mention you, and it's going to help your audience grow, then by all means do that. 
yeah. uh, and then use that as a case study when you approach other brands. Because I think a lot of people wait for... Um, I cer- certainly when we were at a live event a couple of weeks ago that we were talking to a guy and he was saying, um, he was saying, okay, so I just, I just keep going and these brand partnerships are going to start to, like people are going to start to approach me. Yeah. And some people will approach you, but what is much better to do is also approach them. Yeah. I think a great way to think about it is as soon as people start to approach you, you know, that's the time to start approaching other people Yeah. because you know, you've got a product that's worth selling because people are already asking for it. Yeah. hundred percent. This week's guests uh, is is Tati Devine, which is uh, Harriet Vine and Rosie Wolfenden, who um, we're actually going to be working. Well, we've already started working with on a, yeah, on a, a series of projects. Yeah, a series of murals. Um, and so a couple of weeks ago, we were in a school working with year two and year three. They were bloody adorable. They were amazing, <laughs> weren't they? That, that was really fun. So, so fun. So our, our campaign with, with Tati is basically about creativity. It's something that we care really passionately about. And one thing you'll hear about in the episode coming up is the fact about surgeons. Uh, and I, I'm not going to spoil it, but that, I mean, that absolutely blew my mind. Creativity in schools is so important but it's being crushed and uh, budgets are being cut and the first department to go is the art department and so a lot of kids are not getting any sort of creative they're not doing drama they're not doing singing and when you look at the creative industries in this country that are worth 90 billion pounds per year they're our biggest like one of our biggest exports it's like why are we why are we sabotaging our future um, so that's something that we feel strongly about. Tati feels strongly about that as well. So we're going to be collaborating with them um, on a series of murals to try and uh, encourage some creativity, specifically in schools. Um, and we'll be we'll probably be calling on you guys to help us um, mobilise that message as well. Um, yeah, and they've got a new exhibition coming up, haven't they? Yes. So to mark their 20 year anniversary, um, on the 20th of July, 2019, they're opening their first ever solo show. It's going to be at the Letherby Gallery, which is in central St. Martins. And it basically shows their their entire like 20 year journey because they've kept everything. Yeah. Which and is incredible. like from what we've seen, it looks amazing. Yeah. It looks so good. Um, so yeah, so that starts from the 20th of July, 2019. And uh, yeah, chronicling their entire journey from student hustlers, basically, to artists and entrepreneurs with a huge loyal following. Um, so I, I urge you guys, if you are in London, to um, to check that out. I think as well, they're actually going to be touring the show as well. But if you want more information on that, the show's called Miss Shapes. And you can go to craftscouncil.org.uk forward slash Miss Shapes to find out about that exhibition. So yeah, Tati Divine is a jewellery company. Uh, it's created by artists Harriet Vine and Rosie Wolfenden. We've all read that most businesses fail before five years, but Rosie and Harriet are currently celebrating their 20th year in business, which is incredible. Uh, the business started with a bag of found leather offcuts that they just started selling on a market stall. Um, and now their creations are worn by the likes of Nina Nesbitt, Noel Fielding, Jesse J and Bjork, uh, plus a lot of mere mortals yeah. as well. <laughs> in this episode, we talk about the problem with education, Always saying yes, and the importance of creativity. You've just got to value your creativity. Don't ever let anyone tell you that it's not worth anything. Hi, Rosie and Harriet. Hello. 
Hello, hello. Thank you for coming on our podcast. Thank you for having us. (laughs) We're going to do that. We do do that. (laughs) (laughs) We're here in Shoreditch. We've been here since 2011. 2012, I think. We were in Whitechapel beforehand. So, yeah. So, yeah. But um, you've been in this area for. Since 1999. And actually beyond, because we used to come here when we were at art college. So, but, but yeah, living and working since 1999. Have you seen East London change over that time? Just a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, some things for the good and some things for the bad. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny actually, because we we used to live in Brixton and we went down, we went and saw um, Bikini Kill the other night, which was amazing. And we were like reminiscing, walking around Brixton going, God, this has not changed a bit. And then you're like, oh yes, it has changed a lot. But it's a bit like that with Shoreditch. It's like bits of Brick Lane. You just walk down and you're like, oh God, this is exactly the same. And then then you reach the crossroads and you're like, there's a Pret-a-Manger. What happened? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the gun area's shot. just always been changing. It's just, mm-hmm. that's how it is. Like Huguenots, you know, right from history, that's just such a, that's what the area sort of breathe, breathes. What was it like around here in 1999? It was really great when you were making stuff because we didn't have the internet, so you couldn't mm-hmm. Google how to buy anything yeah so the fact that there was loads of haberdashery shops on brick lane and loads of leather shops around the back of all the buildings was fantastic basically Mm. because that's where we got our materials yeah you wouldn't you couldn't yeah other we couldn't find materials otherwise so you just wander the streets and find some nice ribbons nice fabric because we before we discovered lace cutting we were using a lot of leather and trimmings and stuff so it was perfect for that but we used to come here to go out a lot. There's a lot of art events. Everything was like, oh, you know, people would just like break open old shops essentially, found like make old bars in just bomb sites. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was great. <laughs> we used to go out in Old Street a lot and because um, that was, there were still loads of old printers there. Yeah. And we, after going to like 333 or whatever, you just go through all the bins and find old bits of like Amazing, paper. Yeah, like sheets of acetate with like, different CMYK run prints on them and you just cut mm. them up and make Might be worth saying actually because we went to art school so we were just like trained to like find stuff yeah. and make stuff out of we had no money so we were just yeah living the a bins. life yeah in yeah. the bins and drinking for free from private views <laughs> <laughs> basically how we operated still do yeah, I remember, <laughs> and when I was at uni I studied interior architecture and yeah it was like if you saw anything just like in a skip or just like lying around that could become a part of a model you, you would just become yours yeah they, they, used to give us, they used to give us letters home from school well from college to warning us about like the diseases you could catch from skips basically. oh that's responsible yeah. <laughs> there was so much better stuff on the streets then you used to find all manner of like real old stuff yeah you know because there wasn't any Couldn't kind of sharing it. And on the internet, so people just put it out on the street. I feel like London's not really changed in that sense. Like, the amount of stuff that, I don't have it now, but where we lived before that I just found on the street, so like big sets of chest yeah, of drawers that yeah. I just like find, repaint. We had like a clothes drying rack that I think I found the first week we moved to London. It was broken then, but I tied it together <laughs> a bit of string. It's still broken uh, now. And it yeah. got thrown away about like two months ago, so it yeah, lasted yeah. a good nine years. Yeah. But yeah. Actually, our whole business is founded on that because... We started by really from all this leather we'd found and it was very much that sense of someone's thrown away like 14 bin bags of leather. Yeah. We'll have that. It's a treasure. Because what like, would that have cost like if you bought it? God knows. I mean, it was like, I mean, they were actually sample books. So they were kind of thing that if you went into a furniture oh, store okay. to choose your sofa or whatever mm-hmm. and you'd flick through like these big 
big books of, of fabrics and leather. They were they were those. So they were kind of, they didn't really have a value as such, but... I bet they'd sell them on eBay now. I bet <laughs> they would, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Um, Yona actually found one of those um, Sputnik lamps in the street yeah. the other day. So you can still find gold, but it's few and far between, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah. Well, it kind of seems to me that that was kind of a key turning point was when you found the bag of leather. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, it was when we were still at college, so we kind of dutifully sat on it until we'd finished our thesis and yeah. graduated. But we were making stuff before that together and we were, had like a little studio set up in Rosie's bedroom where we'd sew things and cut the bottoms off jeans and twist them around and put them back on again or make skirts out of jeans and just we were upcycling before that was a thing we didn't really know that that's what we were doing you just yeah. just always getting old stuff and turning it into new stuff it definitely was the ammunition to our sort of fire really because when we it all happened very quickly but we graduated in what june july or whatever and we did a market stall our first market stall was the 13th of july and we found the receipt it was eight pounds which is just a bit <laughs> mind-boggling and um, it wasn't that long ago and that was July. And by Christmas, we had to kind of quit the market selling these leather wristbands because we were selling to Harvey Nichols and we were in vogue. So there was this very, very, very quick period of time where just so much happened. And suddenly we were jewelry design. Well, we were accessory designers and we had a fashion label. What drew the two of you together originally? Oh, so <laughs> I had a. I was living in Brixton at the time when we were at college, and Rosie was living with her sister, and she was living in the, the spare room, which was the bathroom in that house. And then the, oh, okay. the ceiling fell in, so she knew that there was a spare room in the flat that we were sharing. Yeah. So she went, she rang up and said, "Harry, can I come and stay in your spare room?" And so we got a couple of old pallets and put them on the floor. <laughs> we bought a. a, a carbon dioxide detector so that she didn't get gas because I had the boiler in that room. It wasn't meant to be a bedroom. And then that was that was it really. Then she moved in and we became like inseparable essentially and we would come out of our bedrooms wearing the same outfits and we would you could hear both of us listening to Bjork in two different rooms. <laughs> and then um, Harriet was working at the VNA waitressing and I'd been waitressing in Finsbury Park where I'd been living but I didn't really want to commute like to do that. So she got me a job at the VNA as well waitressing in the restaurant and when we were, were together we just we just sort of worked so well together it mm. was like we were running the place and we just knew what each other were doing and we knew how to lay a table we knew how to speak to customers we knew about food we knew you know and we just were like oh my god we're running this place we just absolutely we'd go to work together come home together go to college together you know we were turning up at college at 9am and leaving at 6pm and we might have just been stood there like smoking doing jigsaws you know chatting maybe not actually working <laughs> or we or were painting, thinking but we were thinking and we were learning and there were really good times and we just I guess we realised we had a really similar work ethic a really similar attitude really similar aesthetic although different mm -hmm. they kind of came together to create Tati Divine, which is the sort of joy, really, because the two of our sort of obsessive natures came together to create something that other people became obsessed about. And um, it's quite a nice, it's been a nice journey, really. And where did the name come from? Was it from finding stuff in a skip and making it divine? Tati, like, tati, yeah. tati stuff. But my surname is Vine. Oh, so at college, <laughs> people used to call me Divine. And we're a little bit dyslexic, so we didn't really click at the time that 
Divine. It's supposed to spell it with a Because it was like, we were called a Miss Divine, like of the vine and in a French accent. Um, and, and the tatty just came, like when we, when we just love old stuff. I guess there's a sense that if you've got something really, really old, like, um, I don't know, like an old bedspread, an old quilt that maybe was your grandma's and it's tatty, as it were. Yeah. But it hasn't been thrown away because it's so because you it's got so much love in it. So there's just a sense of I guess a little bit of sentiment, but something ex- still existing because it's so loved. Mm. And I suppose that's something we like to think exists in our and what we make because it's not to be thrown away. It's forever. You know? Yeah, I think that's why it's been successful. Is because people they your it's it's really interesting because your your designs represent objects, and then I think those are objects that people fall in love with anyway and it's it's I guess wearing it is a quite almost like a declaration of Mm. things that they love yeah it's like wearing your heart on your sleeve it's like showing it's like when we were at college and we're young you know just like you get things from charity shops and you put you decorate your house with them but you couldn't do shelf fees or show people what you had so Mm. it's like I don't want to leave that macrame out at my house I'm going to take that out with me I'm going to put it on (laughs) so any of the old junk you'd get we would like stick brooch bags to it because there's all those kind of cool knickknacks and stuff that said who you were and explain to other people visually because we're all visual people and I know you're not meant to judge a book by its cover but you are drawn to people and it's a talking point so when someone's got a lobster on and you happen to love lobsters too it's like <laughs> oh my god I love your necklace when you move it, it it's winking at me you know so and then I think loads of friendships have been made and lots of conversations have started up just by wearing seeing someone wearing Tashi Divine going she looks like a nice girl (laughs) I probably like her because in the beginning you you were both studying to be artists would you say that you're still artists or would you would you change the definition are you like fashion designers or what what like I think still artists yeah I think so it's like it's quite difficult sometimes because people love pigeonholing things. Mm-hmm. So like when we would, tr- you know, if we try and get presses fashion, they're like, no, they're too art. And if you get to try and get art press, no, they're too fashion or, or whatever. It's just like I think we're just interested in culture essentially. It's like ev- or everything that human beings make and everything that they've ever done. It's just like that's what's kind of fascinating. Yeah, and I mean, hearkening back to this area when the YBAs were here and setting up like little pop shops and stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of a similar vibe with you guys. Yeah, totally. So, well, like when we were at college, I did this seminar and it was like all about artists reappropriating spaces. So it was all about city racing and it was about Tracy, Tracy Emin and, and Sarah, Sarah mm-hmm. opening their shop on the Bethel Green Road. That was quite inspiring actually because <clears throat> when we were looking for a studio, because we were just working from our bedrooms and Harriet was on Brick Lane, I was on Buxton Street around the corner and um, we were like, oh, there's no, we couldn't find a studio and then we came across, we walked all the way up Brick Lane and got to where our shop is. And there was a big Tillette sign and we were like, oh, it's a shop. Maybe but we could have one of those. Tracy and Sarah did it. We can do it. Right. And let, let's use the shop as a studio space because it was actually kind of the same price. Mm. But it was genius because it really kind of kicked off us as retailers. Whereas everyone, all of our kind of peers within making stuff in that space, they were all... Um, very much wholesalers and still are today and it's quite a tricky you know when you're wholesaling something you're not getting as much money as when you're retailing it but having a shop really enabled us to sort of create the world of Tatty Divine and it kept the wall from the door essentially people come in and buy a plectrum necklace and we'd be able to go and buy some bagels (laughs) yeah it's true and it it was brilliant when we moved into our shop because 
We didn't open it as a shop immediately, but we would put what we were making on the walls just to look at, just to think about. We were still like art students going, hmm, you know. We, were, you know, we, had, we were sitting on the tins of paint we painted the walls with. Cause there was no <laughs> and um, people would like knock on the door and be like, oh, can I come in and have a look? Oh, can I try it on? And before you knew it, you were we were selling. And, you know. We also got brilliant customer feedback as well and met people who were mm. interested Having that physical space gave us this way to create... It's Having space is so important, basically, because it kind of makes stuff happen. So Rosie and I kind of knew we could make stuff happen, like from when we organised the college party together or run the restaurant together. But, you know, it was like that space enabled this whole thing to kind of bloom. And we made like a... We already had lots of friends, but those friends became friends with each other mm. and they were all creatives. And having that space where we used to had all these white walls so we would give them exhibitions because we were like well we'll have a show have a show so we used to do it every month just like (laughs) change the work have a big party and we didn't know we weren't like making a network or networking or it was like pre Twitter, Twitter. You know, everyone would come. Everyone would come. And <laughs> it was they, word of mouth. They'd all yeah. go out and tell all their friends. Oh, I was at Tati Divine last night. It was really brilliant. Um, and that space, yeah, it, it totally enabled us. It. it trickled out into the world, you know. And you know, you'd make friends, and then then you'd end up making jewelry for chicks on speed, and then that jewelry would go to Japan, and so it was just all these like little tendrils that were sort mm. of spreading out around the world. Actually, that space thing. I mean, that's kind of at the crux of the like crisis we're in right now isn't it because without space you can't grow Mm. and you can't no one can afford space anymore in London um particularly and that does that sort of you can really feel that you can really feel that yeah we're the we're the only artists left certainly graffiti wise in um Shoreditch that that still have a studio here yeah where's everyone else gone uh Hackney Dalston but even Dalston Peckham Way like yeah a lot of south yeah Peckham like further out Clapton do you feel Shoreditch is important to you still do could you be anywhere I think it's just really useful because we've still got all the art shops nearby so still like a graffiti shop down the road there's a couple of art shops nearby so it's nice that because a lot of our projects are so fast turnaround that we can be like shit can't get this ordered by tomorrow so we could just go down to the shop yeah. to buy it it's just like we yeah. were 20 years ago that's yeah. like well, I think partly why Brick Lane and the East London are so important because of Atlantis that's yeah. how we oh, knew about it, it. And that we were coming here we'd come here and then you couldn't you didn't really know how to get there and you'd only get there one way and didn't realise that Brick Lane was next to Spitter fields because you only ever walked down petticoat yeah, lane yeah, yeah. and it's because you only get your late, you had to get your a to z out to find it <laughs> yeah when atlantis moved it was like that's such a sucker for it like so annoying for us yeah, yeah. Because atlantis was an art shop for listeners yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't just, it wasn't an, just art an art shop, shop. Oh, it, was, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't that art shop it was yeah huge. it was one of those places that i'd just go into walk you around could just buy yeah, yeah, yeah. everything and anything yeah, it was my dream i mean there was a little tiny art shop in the village where i lived and it was like if i got pocket money or birthday money i would be in there for possibly about six hours working out to spend 15 pounds yeah. <laughs> on exactly which color pastels and you know it was like i'd that would be my best afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> the amount of art equipment I've bought and probably never used because yeah. I just thought, oh, that looks great. I just yeah. really want that. Yeah. And yeah. So it strikes me that it was almost instrumental in your success that there was no internet. Mm-hmm. It was actually yeah, great. Yeah, it gave us this kind of confidence, this kind of naive confidence that we were the only two people in the whole world doing what <laughs> we were doing. We just thought we were on an island. This is it. Yeah, we're doing that. If you'd, if you'd kind of known there was about 50 million other people who were doing the same thing on the, in, on the internet, 
but they could take better pictures than you, you'd be a bit like, oh, God. Yeah. And it kind of really forced us to be very creative because from a marketing perspective, because now you set up a business, you've yeah. got all your marketing channels at your fingertips. It's all there for your creativity to, to flourish in. But we didn't have that. So, you know, we used to do things like make finger puppets of ourselves, displaying our new fax number and send it out to all the press. Fax number. <laughs> because with that was the height important. of technology. But people, that made people smile, that made people react. And from that, we'd get articles. We also like laminated photocopies of luxurious watches, in which we photocop- photoshopped really like badly, badly with, our, with our name. Um, but that resulted in press. And it just meant that we, it kind of gave us license to, you know, we just, we just made anything and weren't afraid to speak, to speak to anyone. We also um, had very low level skills. So when we were like photographing our work to start with, we would photograph it. And then, because we didn't know how to wipe background anything, we'd cut it out with scissors and then scan it back in. We'd cut it out with scissors. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, so like proper cut and paste but we yeah we were very I mean at art school there was like two computers in the library and in combined media which is where people made films on VHS and we didn't know how to use computers we absolutely had no idea I mean I would sit at a computer looking at the Excel with a calculator because you know just had no idea when we did a few courses and it was all fine and now it's great yeah I think not having the internet just gave us naivety but but huge freedom as well but also it was it was a different world because you could get things locally mm. and like and you found out different ways of doing it because when we first started we working with leather but we'd never done any leather work we'd had no we had no vocabulary to even work out how to find things out so my mum w- once rang the local radio station and put a call out if anyone could help us find out how to put fastenings onto leather and then a, a saddle maker rang into the radio station and we went and met a saddle maker who explained to us how to put the right kind of holes and what the findings were called that you use with leather which was kind of um, kind of amazing and there's another story I was going to tell about another thing that happened a bit like that as well <clears throat> we were on Radio 4 once talking about how we loved like finding materials and experimenting and this woman rang up afterwards going oh I think you might like something I've just created which is a a resin which no one has used yet and that's like, like an enamel so it's just like a chemical factory it's great stuff like that still happens but but we were properly lo-fi in the sort of tradition of lo-fi yeah yeah without it there was nothing I mean it was very genuine basically we just did everything ourselves you know it was just like if you if you can't make it if you can't buy it, you make it. So that's what we did, you know. I think those those low-tech marketing campaigns, I think they still really, really work. In fact, maybe more so now because everyone's mm. so used to sending an email. Yeah. Um, I mean, every Christmas we send out, uh, like our clients, we send out gifts that we've made. So, and I mean, we've been doing that for like eight or nine years now. So um, we'll send out like baubles that we've like graffitied their names across, or we once sent out a, a box that was like a kit that came with snowflake stencils and snow spray, but we'd made the cans look like spray cans and just, just things like that. But like, I think most people don't think to try and do something that's just completely wacky, but when you do do it, it just people grabs so much it. attention. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So after you've got your your leather bracelets, what did you do when you ran out of leather? <laughs> well, we did get for meetings where someone would say, oh, can I have 15 pink ones? And I'd be like looking at my little notebook going, no, we've only got enough leather for three of that one. <laughs> we, did, so. we, start, we started buying leather. Every time we did a market store, 
say we made 300 quid, we'd be like, oh, 100 for me, 100 for you, 100 for Tati. And, you know, I remember that we bought a, a pony skin with a zebra print on, which was really sort of uber cool at the time. It was time. so hot at the time. It was yeah. so hot. So we used that and we, things just, we were just getting a little bit more experimental and there was a moment, the Vogue thing was a kind of a, a turning point. And that was, you just you just met someone randomly. Yeah, I was wearing this big cummerbund covered in crystals, but on my head, because I used to work at a vintage shop on the King's Road called Steinberg and Tolkien. And um, this woman just walked in and went, oh, wow, I love what you've got on your head. Where's it from? So I sort of just went, oh, my company makes them, you know. Which You're thinking on your feet. A little bit of a, yeah. Yeah. And she went, Really brilliant. I'm from Vogue and I'm just looking at the moment for stuff for my millennium shoot with Mario Testino. Um, Could you bring your collection in? And I was like, yes, I can. And that was a Friday. And she went, can you come in on Monday? So I rang up Harriet and I was like, Harriet, we're going to Vogue House on Monday with our collection. And she was like, we haven't got one. (laughs) So we made one that weekend because, I mean, we've never, ever, ever been one to turn down an opportunity. Always say yes. We took, we took it all in and met Lucinda Chambers, who's fashion director at the time, and she loved it. And it's in the millennial shoot, Maria Ticino's shoot, and it's on Erin O'Connor. It's quite an amazing shoot. There's a crazy millennium party with loads of different artists mm. and celebrities. But that just, that, that gave us so much confidence, because I could then walk into places and go, are you interested in buying what we make? going to be in vogue mm-hmm. you know and that was just became a marker for the level that we were at and actually from a, a friend of a friend knew someone that worked at whistles and which at the time was really avant-garde it was mm-hmm. selling like hussein shalayan and incredible like stuff that was off and the chart really jeans where you couldn't get them anywhere else oh yeah they were do you remember, I remember I bought that those yeah. with the air of like the yeah. seagull across your bum <laughs> I was like, oh my god but i managed to get a meeting with whistles and they bought this stuff and we by this point we had the zebra skin we were sewing gems on and it was getting a little bit more interesting and then whistles did some press and they got it into the evening standard and the next thing harvey nichols rings up my fax machine and uh, my flatmate <laughs> answered and she was like i'm not her secretary put the phone down oh wow <laughs> yeah <laughs> put the phone down to Carol Lister, if you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I'll never forget it. But I ran back and got a meeting and we got in there and by Christmas, we were on the shelves with Mew Mew. And it was like... From a couple of art students who were like not going to get real jobs ever. That was the point. (laughs) How did you come up with the stock? Like the numbers? Just made it. We got all our friends. We'd done that that April. We'd gone to ATP, the the first ever ATP. Um, down at Canberra Sands and we'd met like a gang that became like a still our really good friends yeah. mostly male they all came and sat around my and dining room told them how to sew yeah they came out and helped us sew them all and we, we literally keep covering them in, in, in plasters because I couldn't believe it was like with all these white ones yeah. we're making for sacks yeah. in America and it's like you can't bleed on the cotton Whatever. So I was like binding their fingers with gaffer tape because it's really hard to sew leather. These are like skaters, musicians, like everyone's creative. Filmmakers. Not- but- <laughs> <laughs> so funny. And Rose was living in this old school at the time, just off Brick Lane, and we would sit outside and sew stuff together. But in the garden of this old school, there was like 60 tortoises. So we'd be sitting there and they'd come and attack our toes because they'd both <laughs> down varnish on, or they'd all be having sex at certain weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so- <laughs> 
have you ever seen a tortoise have sex? It's quite good. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so it was really fun times. That's how we got the production done. And, you know, Harvey Nichols would go, right, we want 100 of this, 100 of that. Can, when can we have it? And we'd say, oh, next week. <laughs> so we were, like, literally, like, these days, well, actually not these days, but Rewind maybe 10 years ago, you know, you're going to be waiting six months for the whole process. And they were, like, brilliant. With, yes, please. Because we just sat and make know. it. Just because we... we didn't you know it was just like we were at home all day essentially we were out all night and bumming around brick lane waiting for bikes all day mm. it was what we did so fun it was so fun you mentioned when you were students both listening to bjork at the same time yeah. what was it then like to see bjork with some of your jewelry on she used to come into the shop and buy stuff. No way. Yeah, totally. I was never in there when she came in because it was when we had our um, shop in, Com- Soho. in Soho. So we used to sell loads of zines and all kinds of stuff. So she would come in and, like, stock up on all her, like, plane reading, you know. But it, it was, it was, it was um, very exciting. we get these phone calls saying, you can't imagine just who came in. We were like, ah. We were chatting the other day about what's your, like, most memorable Top of the Pops moment. Because my husband's an editor and he's been doing those Top of the Pops 88. Yeah. He's working on Top of the Pops 89 at the moment. He says, it's brilliant. But um, like my favourite ever Top of the Pops moment was seeing Bjork sing Venus as a Boy and just, just it just absolutely blew my mind and changed yeah. my life. I think yeah. she's incredible. And then Harriet was like I still remember the street I was driving down, or my dad was driving me down even, when I pushed the CD for the first time into the car. It was magic. So it was magic. And it made me want to be on stage. I was like, I want to be. I used to make all my clothes out of old drags and my mum knitted me a mohair jumper. I got Venus as a Boy on cassette from Woolworths in Croydon High Street. I remember it vividly. Yeah, Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Yeah, Top of the Pops for me was such a... I suppose it was for, for like, just our generation. It was just such a formational part. I I remember the Nirvana performance on there. It's just like... Seven o'clock on Thursdays, you had to be... In front of a telly, basically. And you, yeah. you couldn't watch it again. <clears throat> it was like you had to just... You couldn't... You know, it was like you had yeah, to there's no focus. rerun. No rerun. You can't just watch that video again and then look at the lyric video. Yeah. It's like, no. No plus one. Mm. No no YouTube. Yeah, it's crazy. But yeah, so that must have been amazing when you started to see it yeah. grow. And, and it still and, is, actually. Yeah. Like, it's been quite interesting recently because we've been doing quite a lot of, you know, campaigning jewellery and it's got a little bit more political because we live in crazy times. Mm. But when we see MPs and, you know, political people with political voices starting to wear our, our jewellery because they want to, not because we've, like, told them to or gifted mm. it, it's kind of brilliant because you're thinking, wow, you know, we're, making, message, you we're know? making stuff which really is politicising people but also enabling them to spread that message, like, say what they're thinking that for me is like it's sort of it's just getting better and better like Bjork was one thing but then yeah to actually be affecting things yeah, and, and yeah. helping with the momentum yeah yeah because exactly. I guess jewelry has always been yeah. a sort protest of a way of telling stories and messaging yeah the history yeah. you know through the suffragettes they were very um they used jewelry a lot and actually it goes right back you it's know such a gentle protest essentially mm. but the pin button was that came through the inauguration of Washington, George Washington, and they—that was the sort of the first incarnation of a of a pin badge, and people wanted to wear because he had sort of metal buttons. They were made into badges, so people could wear them as a symbol of them supporting him right. and celebrating him. So that kind of morphed into what we know today as the pin badge. Yeah, but obviously, what we do is an extension of that because it's you know putting in you know 
it's taking the materials to the next stage and, 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 you know, the size and the design, but ultimately it's still carrying a message. That's crazy because I would have thought 1970s would have been yeah, you the, would have thought the so. bad era. No. Like, well, it, well, it was. Like, I mean, that, it started long before. Yeah, yeah way, way back. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. What would you say your core message is? Well, like having done this book, so we're 20 years this year. And we've been working through the book and working through the archive and spent the last year really studying ourselves and realising our message from day one has been about be creative, be yourself, be an individual, have ideas. Do what you love. Do what you love. And it's a reoccurring theme. But right now it feels more important than ever. And it's something that we've always taken for granted because, yeah, creativity, great. But it's been crushed and it's really odd. So I think to take the momentum of 20 years of really believing in creativity and now we've got to a point where we can actually hold it as a message, mm-hmm. you know, to value creativity and its importance, that feels really, really mega, really. Yeah, so we're actually going to be collaborating with you on on a project for your creativity campaign. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of frustrating that in this country when the creative industries are like our biggest export that no one in schools is being taught about creativity it's shocking it's absolutely shocking and we because we've we've um we've been working with the crafts council they they are touring our exhibition which is misshapes the making of tatty divine opens tomorrow tomorrow yes um But yeah, they really alerted us to just the horrors of what's actually going on. So you've got a situation where, yes, the creative industries are contributing 100 billion to the British economy, our greatest export. We surpassed agriculture this year. year. Yeah, Yeah. that was was last year. It's probably more this year. Yet what you've got is a situation where in the last eight years, there's been a decline of 20% of children actually doing creative subjects. There's been a decline of 57% of children doing design and technology. And it's this is a, a, an accumulation of lots and lots of different things, but ultimately there's, with um, austerity, there's like no money going into schools, you know. I mean, do you remember that the last budget, Hammond was like, oh, and there's an extra two million for some pencils and things, because they realized that, you know, schools can't even buy art materials. Mm. Um, so you, you've also got Gove, who who is bringing in the EBAC, which is the core subjects which do not include creative subjects. Mm-hmm. So the default now for children is to not do creative subjects. It's just not valued. Yeah. Or technology. It's or, like, yeah, it's madness. <clears throat> it is insane. And, and you're, you know, this is a time where people are trying to figure out what the jobs of the future are. And the only thing we know for sure is that creativity is going to be pretty important because yeah. everything's going everything to be automated yeah um i think the interesting thing to note is that schools like eton are keeping their art programs oh yes because mm. of course because the thing is it's it's not just about becoming an artist it integrates across all of life and there's this brilliant example this guy called professor kneebone who's a professor of surgery at imperial college and he's, he's actually been campaigning around this because what he's found is he's got all these medical students coming out and they, they've got no dexterity, they've got no confidence. They, mm. When it comes to sewing up, stitching up a patient or actually 
cutting, you know, into the body. They've got no they've got no sort of sense of I can do this or you know, because that's that's the kind of skills you learn when you're yeah. learning to make stuff. And it it isn't necessarily that you're gonna become a knitter. It's you might be stitching up blooming people, yeah. you know. It's just hand eye coordination. It's hand eye yeah. coordination, but there's no integration across subjects. So it's it's a really strange time. I was chatting to some friends who are architects and they're saying they run an architecture practice, but they've got students coming in who've never even like carved up a bit of wood or held a brick. You no know. idea of materials. You, you've got no flexibility. You don't mm. understand things. So, Unless you've played with Play-Doh, you don't know how much force you have to do yeah, to like bend it round. So much in what we do, there'll be a... Because like, for me, creativity is problem-solving. and You think with your hands. Yeah. You think by doing. And there's and all the experiences of all the different things you've had. So we'll go into a situation where we're like, well, we need to build a wall out of this on this kind of thing. And then because you've got so much experience in all that tactile stuff, mm. you're like, well... Well, if we used this and mixed it with that, we might create this new thing that no one's ever really done before. But yeah. because of the experience there, mm. you've now got a new Absolutely. Product. How would yeah. you define creativity? Freedom of imagination. I don't know. I just made that up. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting though, isn't it? Because we well, use this, this word creativity, but we all have kind of a vague sense of it, but there's no real... I kind think of it's definition. Sort of, you sort of start with a blank page. Whether you're going to make music or whether you're going to make a, a piece of art on a wall or you're going to knit something, it's like there's nothing to start with. I mean, there's everything that everybody else has ever done before, but the thing that you're going to make is going to be a new thing that's going to add to that pool of stuff that's been made before. It's 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 thinking, something thinking that, outside of the box. It's you know using ideas to get some somewhere that no one's ever been to before mm. because it applies across everything you know and it's it's just so important <laughs> so how are we gonna change this country well I think that the key thing is is for people just to alert people to this because I think that we, we've got interesting things so Crafts Council have got a program called Make Your Future where they're literally going into schools dusting down the equipment and showing the teachers how it works because what we've got is a lost generation because this has been going on long enough Mm. where you've got teachers who are teaching primary school children where it all happens and all begins and they don't know they've never done it Mm. because they weren't taught it so it's about really enabling teachers to to share that with with children because it doesn't need to cost anything I mean we'll just sit at home with a pile of paper I've got two small kids and you know you just make stuff it doesn't necessarily need money or materials it's just you can be creative with it but you know also if you are a parent you know run a little after school craft club at school whatever it is you can do whether it is just making stuff out of paper it doesn't really matter but it's so important that it comes through from schools because it's you know only parents essentially who are educated and have that knowledge who are able to impart the arts and creativity on their children so really, without schools and without public money, those, what's going to suffer the worst is the poorest children and there's no mm. diversity in the arts, which is, mm. uh, which is really shocking and tragic, mostly. So I think that that's a good place to start. And I think awareness is a really good place to start. So, you know, whether if you can work with children, do it. But if you can just educate others and if you can just bring people's attention to it. I gave a talk recently to some graduates and this like year one, um, I don't know what he was doing there, but graphic student came up to me at the end. He went, oh, I had no idea. What can I do? What can I do? And he, there was a real agency. There was a real, you know, and I was like, you've just got to value your creativity. Don't ever let anyone tell you that 
it's not worth anything. You know, we all went to school where they were like, oh, you do want to do art? Maybe become yeah. a teacher, which... Yeah. Great, we need more teachers, but you know. But we had no my the school. Nobody told me any had no way of saying any creative job out of their mouth apart from you could be an art teacher. Yeah, mm. it was shocking, really. When I look back on it now, it's not that long ago. No, really not. You know, it's not, like, not that long ago. <laughs> I didn't know there was like prop buyers or art directors or TV producers. Mm. I had no idea about any of those roles that existed in the world. I didn't even know how things got into shops. I didn't know if people made things and put them in shops to sell. Even though my mum had like, made things and had a store and done craft and made dresses and, you know, but I had no idea that it was a thing that you could do as a, as a job. Yeah, you learn it all on the job, same as us. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. exactly the same. Yeah. So, yeah, so we're, we're going to be painting a, a big mural with you guys. Um, obviously, the goal of that is to raise more awareness around that. The exhibition op- opens tomorrow, 20th of July. And where can people find more information out about the Miss Shapes exhibition? So it's all on our website and it's all on the Cross Council's website. And come down and have a look. It's just in King's Cross in Granary Square at the Letherby, which is a beautiful, huge new gallery next to St Martin's. And you can come and look at our 20-year archive. Amazing. We'll be there. How's it been going through all of your 20 years' worth of stuff? It's been such a journey. It's such a journey, but it's also been just such a privilege. Like when I was photographing some of the pieces and I was, every time I would put one up in front against the photographer and he would say, what is that? And then I would explain it and what, because when we, I mean, I just felt so proud that I would ma- we made it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really like getting back in touch with old friends and kind of revisiting all of those like obsessions and crazy fads and remembering the ways we've made things and how we found things and the shoots and they just all hold all these memories. I love that you've documented everything so I'm looking through the book uh, when's when's the book out? It'll be out on the 20th as well. Oh the book okay the book launches on the 20th so it's, it's such a beautiful book and it's such a diary of of your journey um, and it, it makes me really sad that we don't have any of that from when yeah, from we, we don't started. have from our first office when we were in this little garage in Norwood we don't have photos of that it was such a miserable time for us that we just the last thing we were thinking about was taking photos and documenting it yeah, also we didn't have phones with cameras yeah. and we couldn't afford a camera yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. that's another thing but it, yeah. Uh, yeah it's so lovely looking through that you've kind of kept your receipts from things you've got there's pictures of the you've got pictures of the old of the leather cuffs that started it all and you've even got like selfies that I guess were taken on we're like on a real camera, on a real film, camera. Film camera. <laughs> yeah yeah yes, we quite like doing a selfie <laughs> luckily but I mean you just never know, quite know whether you're in or not when yeah. you're doing it <laughs> if anyone out there's listening make sure your friend's got really long arms Harriet's got fantastically <laughs> long arms so she takes an amazing selfie <laughs> but yeah it's it's jam-packed full of stuff and we've also managed to get in there a lot of our catalogues because there's not actually any documentation of everything we've ever made and Mm. it's over six thousand things but what we've tried to do is get in as much of the skeleton of what our body of work is you see our crazy graphic design yeah there's a lot of graphic design going on because we every season we're like right we're really into this and and so the graphic just a jewelry had to be all the everything you know redesign the logo to match the 3d obsession we're having with movies at the moment or whatever (laughs) Our branding kind of settled down, I guess, after social media. And it was like, actually, should we just stick to one kind of vibe here? One (laughs) colour? One colour, yeah. But the book, you can kind of get a sense of 
the chaos turning into something a bit more controlled into something that's now really polished um, but now we've got to this polished place it, it's almost like it's given us license to go back to the beginning and mm. be a bit chaotic again and it's quite a nice feeling to think um actually let's be let's get experimental let's make what we want to make have you ever looked back at some things you made like 19 20 years ago and thought let's remake that now in the way that we do it now in a funny kind of way, we've sort of Sometimes. done that. Sometimes look and think, how did we get where we <laughs> ever got? <laughs> look at this. <laughs> but what we've done, we've done a, a collection which we've called Miss Shapes, which is taking some of our sort of classic pieces, but make, remaking them today mm-hmm. with everything we know today. I mean, pieces that aren't necessarily that old, but um, just pumped up. Just they're like pumped naked. Up. Yeah. Really I mean, good. the lobster seems to me to be like a key. A key piece. Yeah, absolutely. Is that have you kept that in different collections going forward, or was yeah? It's been around since two thousand and four. We unfortunately don't have every version ever, but it has every. We've never stopped selling it, and every now and then Harriet will go, "Oh, I'm just gonna like neaten him up a bit, or like yeah. let's just tweak it here, tweak it there." So it has it has sort of morphed from one thing into another, but ultimately to the untrained eye. It's the same. (laughs) With 6,000 pieces, do you ever worry that you might run out of ideas? Nope. (laughs) Good answer. Okay. Uh, How did you first get into using acrylic? Oh, so, well, when we first started, we um, had no idea what we were doing, essentially. So we went, I was signing on the dole, basically, and I was a bit nervous because we were running a market store. And I was like, I don't think I'm meant to run a market store and be on the dole at the mm. same time. I need to work out how to do this. So I said to the dole office, I did a market store on Saturday. I don't think I should get the dole. What should oh, I do? Oh, you're so honest. And um, so <laughs> she, the lady said, why don't you go to the East London Small Business Centre? So I, I went there and they gave me £50 to walk in through the door with an idea, which probably doesn't happen now. Yeah. And, um, and they were really useful we got all kinds of advice from them but what they did give us was some funding to do some overseas research so we managed to score two tickets to get to New York which was amazing (laughs) to go and um, do research on what shops we should sell to in New York which was amazing Um, so but what we did find when we were in New York as well as shops to sell to was we found Canal Street Plastics which is basically a shop that sells bits of acrylic little laser cut bits of acrylic and sheet acrylic but what we used them for was because we were buying found objects we were making stuff out of cake decorations and dart flights and any bits of any bits of junk we could find and turning it into so these were like found objects and we said we bought like some poodles and some dogs and birds and and we bought them back to london stuck brooch backs on them and then they were really popular and we were like this is great so we were left to like ringing and faxing New York, trying to work out how <laughs> sending them a cheque. It's like, but it's in sterling, like really struggling to get like 12 more poodles across the channel. <laughs> it was the Atlantic even. So it was trouble. So we were like, there must be a way of doing this in the UK. So then luckily, again, because of the East London, on the Bethnal Green Road, there was a Perspex place, sold Pers- Perspex shop. So I went in there and asked them about these little shapes and if we could get them and then they recommended a model maker on the Hackney Road so it was all walking distance yeah. it was so geographical and we, before that we had sort of thought about getting our own shapes made and we had sort of looked into it but you have to create a mould it's yeah. all overseas it's very very expensive and suddenly there was and our like, ideas were too off the wall to ever yeah, no need was... to make a thousand of anything yeah so the idea of just being able to make one of something just laser cutting one shape or was completely liberating. Two shapes, or ten shapes, or hundred shapes, and it being the same. It wasn't like you had to invest 
in getting 100 shapes made. Yeah. It was an eye opener. It was a it was a moment because it really meant we suddenly realized we could have a sort of process of making stuff that we were fully in control of that was local but also that we could make like shiny bright plastic, plastic real things, things that we were slightly obsessed yeah. by and they could be 10 inches tall if you wanted them to be because we only had we only had to have one in the shop mm. and if nobody sold it I was just gonna have it anyway <laughs> <laughs> and actually yes because before that we'd been making jewelry out of shapes that we'd literally got color photocopies glued them to hardboard Harriet got her jigsaw out cut it out stuck a brooch back on and yes it was a 12 inch budgie as a brooch but suddenly with with acrylic we could take that to the next level the only trouble was was that we didn't really have any computer skills and if you think back this is sort of 2001 end of 2001 do you remember like when the ipod came out and all of like the adverts it was like illustrator was a really fashionable kind of aesthetic and we had friends that were like making that kind of work so we said to them oh can you help us make some some shapes and there were these friends are still friends today and they helped us design our first laser cut collection which was inspired by fuzzy felts so we liked the idea of just being able to stick you know shapes to your t-shirt so that you're a bit like a fuzzy felt game so um (laughs) I found all the faxes between us. They were only in Camberwell, but we used to communicate by fax because you could draw. So he would just draw like, we'd say, oh, we want a bunny, a lawnmower. A hoover. uh, hoover, Like random shapes. But he would like was drawing them by freehand then in Illustrator. And then we were getting them cut just up the road. And that was our first laser cut collection. Yeah. And then gradually we were getting more and more stuff cut at the model makers and... He said to me, you, know, you probably should buy one of these machines. And I was like, quite expensive, aren't they? But um, a few weeks later, we were getting even more cut, even more cut to the point where we thought, probably yeah. should work out. We were spending like a £1,000 a week with him. Yeah. <laughs> and it was 25 grand to get a machine. So it kind of, we Makes got a bank sense. loan. It was our first bank loan. And it was a bit, you know, daunting, essentially. It was, and it was a huge machine. machine. Arrived, it was just like... Okay, here we go. So I, and, you know, I had to take the computer home and just work out because I've been on Photoshop. I understood the idea of a pixel, but illustrated the idea of a vector. It was mm. just like, okay, I need to understand what that means, but I can't Google it because there's no tutorials on the internet yet. Yeah. So I'm just going to sit here and play with it and poke all the buttons until I understand how it works and what it does. I feel like even now, you like laser cutters and like any kind of cutting machines. Their software is generally just awful mm. compared to something like Illustrator. Yeah. So, so like whenever I've used anything else, even now it's hard. So yeah. I can imagine back then it must have been. It was really hard. Yeah. But Harriet was amazing. I mean, the amazing thing with Harriet is that like your brain is like very logical and able to unpick like technology and understand it. My mm. brain doesn't do that. Um, and I'll never forget coming into the shop and Harriet's just holding the motherboard of this machine. I, I mean, to this day, I've never, I've never really even touch the laser cutter I, I don't really get involved are you told to stay away from it <laughs> uh, no one had to say that because okay. I kind of get the gist um it's fine I'll just talk about it um but yeah like holding the motherboard and I was just like wow that is just amazing we're so similar it's so funny like oh, really uh, yeah I'm, I'm the techie one yeah <laughs> and, and I'm not <laughs> it's fine 
you know, that's what makes good teams there, you know? Yeah. Exactly. It's like people always say, you maybe you've got on your list, you know, like, how come you're, how come you're still friends? <laughs> <laughs> or are you really still friends? Or, or what, you know, how did, what's the, so what's so, well, how did you manage to make it to 20 years? Yeah. And because there's two of us and we have yeah. this complementary skill sets, whereas I can make something, but if you've made something, you're so close to it. Mm-hmm. Like at Fashion Week, I wouldn't have been able to stand on the sun and go, you should wear this. And I, because I wouldn't understand why they wouldn't know that. And I wouldn't understand why a shop wouldn't know what they wanted to buy. Because if I had a shop, I would know exactly what they wanted to buy. And I wouldn't, no one could tell me or sell me because I would have a vision. Whereas Rosie could stand on the stand and go, see this budgie, you really need to buy this because it's going to be in vogue. And they'd go, oh yeah, okay, I would like some budgies, please. (laughs) So it was just like this like synchronicity or meshing Mm. together of two kind of, it's really the same but two different sides of a coin yeah we're two different sides of a coin and I mean we've always said as well it's like you know it's very hard to do stuff on your own like you need you need to say things out loud and then you know the answer like Mm -hmm. when you've got questions or problems when there's two of you you can just say you know what should we do Do this that's too big and then you know the answer you know it's too big because you've had to say is it too big but that kind of yeah, that dependency on each other is really I think that honesty as well, because it's like if you don't have someone else and you say to like a loved one, what do you think of this? It's always going to be, oh, it's amazing. Well done. Yeah. Whereas as soon as you've got someone who's actually in it with you and their money's involved too, it's like, <laughs> nope. it's like if, you this, if you come with a stupid idea, they're going to be like, no, that's not going to pay our rent. So no. Yeah, I think honestly. Have you, have you ever fallen out? No. 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 Amazing. But then I was also listening to oh, something describing these... Um, I thought it was a really good description. It was the archers. Oh, so, God! <laughs> <laughs> the, two, the, 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 two mother, the two mothers who are grandmothers are now in their 90s. And they've, they've always been really... She said, we've always been parallel tracks. Always close, but never far apart. You know, it's like you're just on this journey together, alongside each other. We're never going to come off the rails as it yeah. were it's all too important we love it we love each other and we just you know keep on moving forwards basically yeah we were asked a question at an, at an event recently and we got to it got really deep and we started talking about relationships and I think that and it happens in romantic relationships and business relationships that as soon as your goals aren't aligned then that's when when you come apart and it's when you're not on that same track that that's when things as long as you're both always striving towards the same goals then yeah everything will be fine on those tracks and i love the tracks thing that's great yeah yeah, exactly it's like even if things you take curves you have your ups and downs you're still going up and down together still has two lines going yeah and then so yeah you're never too close because that you know but you're never ever further apart than however far apart that those racks are. <laughs> so you've, obviously you're going to be collaborating with us, collaborated with our friend Poppy Chancellor. And how important has collaboration been for you guys? Because obviously it opens your work out to the audience that you're collaborating with. Yeah, absolutely. Well. I mean, right from the beginning, it's always been utterly important, like I was saying about like with the Chicks on Speed thing, the way it, it sort of gets messages out there. And it's such a lovely creative relationship too it's like well all the good all the good ones or all the ones we've ever done because they've all been good um, <laughs> it's like, when, when you know it's right when it just feels easy mm. it's like yeah. you can meet with somebody and you can visualize their work into jewelry and they 
are you know are in, are interested and want to feed in and stuff and then you it's kind of great because it makes you realize what skills you have and it's like because it seems so easy and then someone else would look at it and be just like I don't I don't know what, how on earth that could be jewelry but it's just like mm. it feel it's natural it's natural it's also that thing it's that that cross-disciplinary thing where you can learn from each other which is really brilliant but it's also the idea that you can make something that really otherwise wouldn't exist because you do what you do, they do what yeah. they do, yeah. and when you put the two together, something magic happens. And they ask questions and they make you take risks. Can I look in at some of the collaborations that are in the exhibition? And there's one piece we did, Kit, Kit Neil, and it's really complicated and it's got lots of loads of different colours, which sometimes I might not do because I know that it would be difficult to to make. Mm-hmm. I would I have that in my mind, but also it has a marabou. Th- um, feather trim <laughs> hair yeah so and I would never think to use marabou feather trim because I know that when you cut that in the studio the little tiny bits of marabou feather are going to just be like <laughs> sticking to every completely <laughs> static perspex surface in the whole building oh, yeah, um, you know yeah. you know so like I was a bit like okay we can do that we'll cut it outside and then we'll put it over we'll put the hoover over it to get rid of all that stuff but like things like that i wouldn't i would just wouldn't even go there yeah like we did a collaboration with i think it's l'oreal and it involved glitter and then now that was in our old studio and glitter's not allowed in this one because it got everywhere and for the months you'd get home and you'd be like oh there's a bit of glitter on me from that project we did six months ago Glitter yeah. is the herpes of craft supplies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How did your business change when social media came along? Was, did you embrace it straight yeah, away? Yeah, it was, it was, it we was really, really early. brilliant. We had this brilliant girl called Sonia working with us who was so on top of all of that. And she, she sort of set up our first, I mean, Twitter account. We had all the old ones, like we had a, a MySpace and all the rest of it. But yeah, no, when social media happened and then smartphones happened, it was, it, that was when really the, the brand came into its own. It kind of enabled the brand. It's almost like the audience branded us. It was mm, the... That's lovely. Yeah, it, it was reaffirmed by the community more than anything. Um, I mean, because we've always had our shops, we've always had that really brilliant um, relationship with our customers where we can listen to them, talk to them. We've always had an amazing team that work in the shop that are, you know, the, the, the front line of, of the brand, as it were. Um, but social media magnified that. So it wasn't just the people that could get to London. Yeah. It was like the people from Scotland that could also feed into, oh my God, I love your banana necklace or... You know, just it was just it was like a wider net, and people could love it from further away. <laughs> How many countries have you shipped to? We all over, yeah, about twenty. But I mean, not online, yeah, 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 yeah. It's it, it completely changed things, and it, it did. It took us from a fashion label to a brand pretty quickly, and then we had in two thousand and twelve, we had a big. Um, we trended on Twitter with a big IP case that without the without social media would never have. It would never have, we would never have yeah. won, basically. Um, so I, someone copied your designs? Yeah, High Street yeah. Store copied like seven designs. And we took advice, but we decided, we did a blog called Spot the Difference. And we just put it up there. 
And it kicked off, basically. It I mean, the off. designs were identical. They were absolutely yeah. identical. But we suddenly realised we had, like, an army. It felt like yeah. an army. It was amazing. Because it wasn't just our fans. It was people who were just interested in design. It was, wasn't just people interested in design. It was people who were interested in IP law. It wasn't just that. It was people running PR companies. Because they, they, they were like, what if this happens to us? Yeah. It was, it was because it was so, pi- it was like a pioneering case of how this could get handled in the public sector. It was interesting actually because the uh, company that copied us their social media people didn't really know what they were doing because it was early early days and people were writing on their facebook going you fucking <laughs> and um they were deleting it which is obviously like a Ooh, big yeah. no-no. so our our fans were like screenshotting like it and then putting the screenshot of the facebook comment on twitter saying that they'd taken it down it was just Brilliant. And we didn't do any work for about a week because we had every national paper calling us every day. We're doing interviews. We went on Watchdog. It was insane. (laughs) But it was brilliant. And that was the power of social media. And it trended globally. Like it, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. I was talking about this yesterday, actually, to someone how I quite often get questions with like younger people, especially who are like scared to put their work out because they're scared it will get copied. Yeah. And worrying like, do I have to watermark all my images? And I'm like, Mm. where we are in the world now it's so easy to call someone out if they've copied you and it's so easy to get a movement of people behind you. It doesn't happen so much in term, because there is backlash. Yeah. And it's happened a few times in like the graffiti community where artists have just been completely ripped off. Like their, a photo of their work is put on a dress yeah. that is then, yeah. and it's like, and they completely say it's, it's not yeah. a copy, but it literally is. Yeah, these days, you, because of the internet, you've got so much support when you need it. And that comes back to our sort of core messaging, which is around creativity and originality, because we've always like we would never want to make something that already existed. Like, why would you want to do that? But if you educate people creatively, Mm. they won't want to do that. I mean, why would you? It's lazy. It's so, yes, I mean, uh, yes, art education, not just about learning how to sew and how to draw. It's it's about how to think, isn't it? Mm. How to have an original thought. Have there ever been any tough times? Definitely. I mean, because that's the thing I like in knowing about your brand and and seeing you like and social media and everything. We do only see the successes. Mm -hmm. I think it's important for people to know that these I mean, we've been through so many hard times. Just work harder, harder and harder when it's tougher and tougher and tougher. And actually, the, the longer you keep going, the more perspective you have. And then you start to see things in context and with yeah, I mean, I, I, I recently went down to a party at the weekend in Deal in Kent and I drove down this incredible woman who's in her like late 60s and um, she was a real oracle of thought and, and we were talking about the tough times and the good times. Like right now, everything in my life feels amazing and you think back to when it wasn't amazing and you know that probably there'll be another time when it's not amazing but you'll have the... Mem- you'll have the... the, the it's all relative. Yeah. And the bad and that, times make the good times, times even, even better. better. And you have to, it just, it all levels out. I mean, can you imagine if life was just the same and it was okay all the time? They, they, you have to have payoffs for good times. And, you know, it's tough. Everything's tough. But, but we kind of thrive from it, I think. In the early days when things are tough, though, that's when you don't have that experience to exactly to back it so up. in the early days it's harder because so we just, just have to go wait we used to go waitressing at the beginning you know and then we'd go waitressing and you get paid 
nothing but at least you could eat or whatever but then you'd miss a call from Vogue and you'd miss a call from (laughs) a shop trying to buy something or whatever your flatmate would hang up on them yeah (laughs) it was like and you kind of have to weigh that up it's just it's really really difficult yeah what do you think you do now because like when you left uni like you didn't have student loans rent was a lot cheaper in those Mm. days what would you do now if you'd come out of uni with loads of debt and London rent's really expensive. It would be terrifying, wouldn't it? I mean, it was quite, it was pretty daunting then, although we, I went, I'd had housing benefit and I was on the dole. Mm. And my, my mum said to me, oh, you've got a degree now, that's amazing. Are you going to get a job? And I categorically said, no, I'm moving to Hackney, I'm going to drink free wine. And she, <laughs> you know, and she could have got, she probably, you know, went slightly ashen, but she didn't say, no, you're not, you've got to be a teacher or whatever. Not that, <laughs> only because you know this advice or you didn't you know go back to school and yeah. do a, do an academic subject you've got to get a real job she just sort of went okay dear you know because mm-hmm. you gave me that freedom essentially to kind of and that's really quite privileged essentially isn't it but you could do that then I don't I mean I think it's pretty much impossible to get the doll now I have no idea they probably really, make you yeah, go drive a forklift yeah, truck they make you work it's really it, I really I think about it a lot like would Tattoo Divine exist if we started today? And I think where there's a will, there's a way. Like, I think we probably would have done something. And I think there's also, I think there's, life's changed, hasn't it? It's like, it's not necessarily acceptable to live in a squat on a pallet anymore. But I think that's going to change. I feel like the gloss is being sandpapered off because it's like, actually, it's, it's, it's unrealistic to have like a beautiful house and, and you know from nothing you kind of it's okay to like you know start somewhere, start somewhere. Yeah. and if it is someone's spare room that should be a bathroom then that's fine just go with it I mean yeah we used to share bedrooms like what rent was much cheaper but mm. even then still there was bedrooms. two people in a room like when I moved to London, I used to stay with, in fact, both shared with the same friend, like at different times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bunk, I had bunk beds. Like my flat on Brick Lane was a studio, one bed, like a bed a sit yeah. that we had bunk beds, the Tati Divine office, and it was just in a room. And oh my gosh, she, she was brilliant. She worked on the big breakfast um, and she used to have to get up at like, she, a cab would come for her at 4am every day and she had amazing hair that she'd hairspray and I'd just wake up every morning with like <laughs> like my mouth glued like open but you know it was all part of the fun <laughs> so I I don't know I, I I really can't imagine what it would be like to you know leave with all this debt and that sort of sense that you've got to earn money I mean yeah I, I didn't have any debt I had a grant to go to college but um I didn't. But, and also that kind of pressure of like when we were at college, you spent three years thinking about what you wanted to make and what you wanted to do. And I mean, that was daunting enough from coming from school, being told to do this project and told to do that mm-hmm. project. So you have to get, it's that really amazing space of trying to work out what it is that you could actually do if you could do what you want. And if you, you were given this beautiful support of all these other lovely human beings talking about your work and talking about their work and encouraging you. And when you come out of college, it's like if you've done that for three years, you kind of, you've, you've got such a head start. But having that space at college to sit there, even though it was, 
you know, we might have been doing jigsaw puzzles and stacking up bits of glass to the unknown. <laughs> you know, if you had to sit there and worry that it was going to be th- you were spending thirty thousand pounds on it, the anxiety of that I think would have been crippling essentially because I would have felt guilty. Yeah, you know, there's I, a lot of that. I would have felt bad that because my I, I parents mean, were having to go without something or that my future self mm. was going to be so I got through in jeopardy. without any parental support. I mean, I didn't get any money from my parents and I waitressed. I don't know, it's like we did work hard. It's, it's just a different time it's now. It's just a different and, time. And the creative ones are going to, they're going to, find a way i think i mean we're we're doing enough events where we're meeting these these creatives every every time we're out and not only young people i mean we're getting dms from people in their 60s that are that are listening to the show that that have decided like now's my time and that's it's fucking amazing man i think that where where there's a will there's a way yeah rent was rent used to be easier but like i mean the people we're talking to, they're making it happen. And in 10 years from them, from them making it, they'll be talking to people and be like, oh, I wish it was how it was in 2020. And, yeah, and totally. it's mm. like, things it's just change. But like, if you're, if you're hungry, if you want something bad enough, you'll find make a way to happen. make it happen. And, and we're seeing that, which is amazing. Yeah. You work with a lot of kind of young, young entrepreneurs, which is kind of great, like giving back to the community. I think it's really important to be visually out you know visually make yourself seen because unless you're seen then people don't know that you can do it you know so I think everyone who's creative has kind of got a responsibility to kind of explain and show themselves to other people as kind of like mentors or just someone who they can like look up to essentially and as mentors what's the the kind of common questions that you get asked well, so a lot of the time, well, for people making things, it's to go back to, like, how are you pricing stuff? Because they're pricing their product, which is in, in relationship to something that they're selling or seeing on the high street and trying to explain to people what their USP is. Because you, if they're making gloves, they can't sell them for £15 because Topshop sells gloves for £15 because they've taken two weeks to make that pair of gloves yeah. and mm-hmm. they're made of cashmere. So it's kind of like, OK, so before... Before we start, yes, they're beautiful. That's all good. I'm That's just given. Valuing your time. But yeah. the, the wool for those gloves costs eight pounds, and you spent six hours making them. If you worked in a cafe, you would get paid sixty pounds. So it's already we're at sixty-eight pounds. So, and if you're going to sell them to a shop, they're going to be one hundred twenty pounds. Or you know, so it's that, or you want to sell them to the shop for one hundred twenty pounds before you've made anything you know it's just trying to get them to understand the value of what it is if they make something by hand and also how to get that story across too that's such good advice because i think that so many creatives don't value their time they don't put a, a monetary figure on their because time you enjoy it so yeah. it's like so many people say but i enjoy that bit i say <laughs> yeah but if you're gonna get stuck doing production then what happens in six months' time when your customers don't really want to buy that thing anymore, but you're still making six of it a day, so you can't make, you can't think of anything else for the new customers to buy once they've already got that one. So if you, what you need to invest in is time for product development and thinking of new things rather than getting caught. So if, if your business does well and you, you're, you're not costed it in just because you like doing it, it's flatlined. You can't get someone else to come and help you because you can't pay them to do it we were quite lucky when we started because um because we came from things from like an artistic perspective like the first things we made like the leather but then also putting plectrums on things like a 20p plectrum on a 20p chain and we'd hold it up and go 
think that's worth £18. <laughs> so <laughs> we were selling we, things we for were, eight, you know. We, Great. We were really obsessed with this shop called um, the Papinia Lie and Brown's Focus, and they would sell things like um, a fake fingernail with hair on it or a piece of gauze that you stuck on your face. It was a chin accessory. <laughs> it was that kind of daisy confused, let's rip our eyebrows yeah. off and just wear a fluorescent dot on the left side of your cheek <laughs> kind of vibes um, and that was just like oh you go in there and everything was £70 and it was like but it was, it was packaged it was like vacuum packed or in a yeah. in a drip bottle or whatever and you never could open it or wear it because the packaging was too <laughs> fantastic but that kind of was like well I want the stuff to be in there yeah. so so we sort of priced we made it up aligned with where we'd want to see them or how we'd want them to be seen um and we valued our ideas, you know. So I think there's a sense of pricing is, is really important, but it comes down to actually valuing yourself, your creativity, your ideas and what you've made. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, Rob Ryan always says, I told him this, but I think someone told me this, that there is no point getting stressed. There's no point. So I don't get stressed. You don't get stressed. <laughs> You run a huge company. <laughs> That's the funniest thing ever. <laughs> I do get quite stressed, but I try not to. I try not to. <laughs> I didn't realise this was a thing. Apparently, I, everyone's laughing. Um, I don't know. Advice. It's like love what you do is major because it can be really hard, and it's much easier to do something you love than something you don't Absolutely. love. Absolutely. And also. Yeah, I mean, it, I also think if you're on this, if you're sort of trying to sell what you do, it come, you know, if you actually love something, then it's really easy to sell because, you know, if you're really into it, it's really easy. Whereas mm. if you try and sell something you don't really like, yeah. mm, it's harder. I think so. also that goes back to the the, uh, the kind of not of, he didn't he didn't give it to me but that William Morris quote which is uh, make nothing that you don't believe is beautiful or you don't believe useful and I just think there's too much crap in the world as it is so don't need to put anything in the world that shouldn't be there it's like only make things that need to exist amazing where can people find you online divine.com <laughs> amazing thank you guys that was alright thank you thank you <laughs> Thanks for listening. We're trying to help a lot of people with this show, so we need your help to grow the community and spread our message. If you know someone who'd benefit from hearing what we talked about today, or they just need a little nudge in the right direction, pass this podcast on to them. If you want to hear more, then subscribe to us on iTunes. And if we helped you with anything, we'll really love you forever if you can leave us an iTunes review. It makes a huge difference. See ya. See ya.